Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From building a well-balanced college list and developing a payment strategy to creating a high school plan and more. Each episode will help guide your family through various steps of the process. Enjoy the show. Welcome everyone to today's episode of Getting In a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga from College Coach. I'm really excited about our show today. Um, I'm going to be interviewing Jessica Mertz from the Cleary Center. Uh, You may not have heard of the Cleary Center, but they're all about student safety on college campuses. And Jessica is not only the executive director, she's also a parent. So she'll be talking from both perspectives about what to consider when you're sending your child off to college. And that'll be during our second segment. Um, For my third segment, I'll be talking with Nicole Doyle, college coach colleague, and uh, we'll be talking all about applying to college as a homeschool student because it is a little bit of a different process and there are some things that you need to consider. But for my first segment, and those of you who are watching this on video, you will see Beth Feinberg Keenan, um, one of my finance colleagues, and she is here to talk about how to interpret your financial aid package. So listen in. Hi, Beth. How are you today? Great, Sally. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. Oh, absolutely a pleasure. And I think this is such an important topic. Like, how do you interpret your financial aid package? I think a lot of people don't know this. And I can tell you that from having worked at Reed and then working at Whittier, the packages looked very different. I I was less involved when I worked at University of Chicago, but... So very confusing for families. So let's let's dive into that. And I think I already, like one of the things I wanted to ask you and I already sort of gave it up is will the awards look the same from all of the colleges that my student is admitted to? So I think, yes, Ali, you already uh, spilled the beans on that one. Yeah. <laughs> they, they are not going to be the same. And I think that's, it could be a little bit stressful for families because they get different aid packages and just trying to disseminate that information, like, where am I finding, like, what the financial aid is, or how much is this school going to cost me now that I have this financial aid? And there's no standard award letter. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to, you know, really figure out, like, what's the cost of attendance at that school, and what are the fees, and what's the room, and what's the, you know, what's the the food uh, that you're you're going to be charged for your student to attend that school and then what type of financial aid is being offered and really just reading reading that information and if you don't understand it then you really need to reach out to the financial aid office and ask them you know can you help me can you walk me through this award letter like what is in front of me and can you help me better understand what you know what our bottom line is mm-hmm. yeah what am i going to be borrowing what am i going to be paying for you know right. So, because I think that, I I mean, I've seen it myself. uh, I was a college counselor. And so I helped some students interpret their aid packages. And some colleges would make their aid package look really good. But when we'd parse it out, I'd say, actually, this college is going to be more expensive for you than this other college. The aid package doesn't look as good, but there are fewer loans. You can get loans if you want to, but they're not actually even awarding you loans. So, like, you know, I would have to kind of walk people through because it can look confusing. So, yeah, I think, you, I think you make such a great point, Sally. It's interesting, too. I think sometimes the numbers really stand out to families, but then they don't weigh that against the cost of the college. Mm-hmm. I was working with a family or just responding to a question today with a family and the student was accepted to two schools 
And I don't know if they really dug down into in terms of the cost of attendance, but they said, hey, this school offered scholarship of this amount, and another school, school offered half of that amount. But when, when I, I dug, dug down, down to, when I dug, dug like, a little bit deeper, deeper, I said, okay, well, the school that offered you doubles is $9,000 more than the other school that offered you $10,000. So that's, that's where you really had to separate, like, well, what, what is, is it going to cost me to attend that school? And while that, that bigger scholarship definitely could look more attractive, it, it could be offsetting a higher cost of attendance. And at the, at the end of the day, you might pay roughly the same amount of both of those colleges. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So pay dig into the details. Um, and let's I, I don't know if we can switch, but how long are the awards good for as well? And I, I do know of students who the initial year got a very favorable package and then in subsequent years it might have been less so. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about how families can find out about that. So the financial packages that are sent to families are typically, you know, one um you know, know, or just, just typically, typically you know, for one, one year. And you're going to have adjust for it that year. So if you have a high school senior and you're receiving the financial aid package that is for this upcoming year, that's just for their first year. But scholarships. If you have a, if they have a scholarship as part of their financial aid package, on the admissions letter, it's going to typically indicate if that's renewable and what they have to do in order to have that renewed from year to year. But need-based grants, Pell grants, state awards, student loans, college work study, all of that is one year. And you have to reapply for financial aid in subsequent years to get financial aid for those years. But typically, I have found that if your household income household assets don't change that considerably from year to year, then you are likely to see a relatively similar aid package from year to year. But no school could guarantee and say, hey, this is the package of your all years. All right. So, and Beth, going on to the next question, um, I think families also are going to want to know how much do they need to, be, to pay and what is the best way to figure out what they need to pay? So I think that it's important to figure out, first and foremost, identify what those cost components are. Figure out what your tuition is. Figure out what the fees are. And if your student's going to be residing on campus, figure out what food and housing are. And then from there, subtract out the different types of aid. So you, I want families to subtract out grants, scholarships, the free money that they don't have to pay back. They can subtract out the loans from that cost of attendance figure two, but know that loans have to be repaid. So while they might not be paying it today and it's helping pay the balance that they owe to the school, once the student graduates or falls below a half-time status, they're going to have to pay that loan back. Um, so that's a, you know, that's a great way for them to really look at figuring out what their bottom line is. If they have college work study, do not subtract that from the bill. And then they really have to determine like, do they need to borrow for things like books and supplies and personal expenses and transportation? Because those are still components of the cost of attendance, but those are indirect costs and those indirect costs are not going to be billed to you by the institution. And if you don't have other tools and resources to pay for those components, then, you know, that's going to really impact like what that bottom line is for your family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what about, what are all the different types of aid? 
that are that you hear about? You know, who are they coming from? Can the student access them every year? Like, what are the possibilities there? Right. So I think the, the, the components that really everyone wants is the free money. It's the, it's the gift assistance. And that can come in a variety of different ways. It can come um, from the school specifically. And that's where a lot of the larger um, gift assistance is going to come from. So that could come from the form of scholarship. And that's going to be awarded at the time of admission. And then you could have grants. And grants are based on financial need. And that's going to be awarded from the financial aid office. But if you're a relatively low-income family, uh, you might qualify also for a Pell Grant, and that comes from the federal government. You could qualify for a state grant in your state if your state has state grant funding, and that's coming from your state. Uh, There's college work-study, which allows your students to work on campus part-time. Remember, I just mentioned that's money that's not subtracted from the bill, Mm -hmm. so it allows your student to work on campus, and that's coming from the federal government. Most of it's coming from the federal government. The school is paying a small portion of it. And then lastly, which I think we've touched upon a couple times, Sally, are loans. Mm -hmm. Um, loans can be a part of the financial aid package that your student receives. But as Sally mentioned earlier, there are some schools that don't package loans as part of their financial aid package. It doesn't mean that your student can't take out a student loan, but their packaging strategy is such that they don't include loans. But if loans are a way that you're going to pay for college, you can always reach out to the school to say, hey, can we get the loans? And then I also want to just call note to some colleges might take it to the next step and package a parent loan on mm-hmm. the financial aid package. So if you're looking at an award and you're saying, oh my God, this is fantastic. I don't have to pay anything. But if you dig a little bit deeper and you notice that you have a parent loan for $10,000, $20,000, $30,000, well, you as a parent hopefully know that like that loan has to be paid back and you don't have to take it out, but the school's not going to replace that with something, of, you know, some institutional money of their own. So you have to have another way to cover that, that shortfall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. And so what is then, I mean, we've kind of talked about this again, but like maybe this is kind of the summary, you know, of what is the best way to compare award letters between the schools? So what I encourage families to do, you know, whatever works best for you. I'm somebody who loves Excel and spreadsheets. So I just use an Excel spreadsheet. I kind of lay out a column. What's the tuition? What's the fees? What's the food? What's the housing? And I put that for all of the colleges. So if you have five different colleges, you just lay all that out. And then from there, I come up with my total. And then I have like a few lines down and I, you know, map out, okay, like do my student get scholarships? What are the scholarships that they got at those? And then what's the grant assistance? Um, do they have institutional grant, Pell grant, state grant? Like, what are the grants that they're getting? And then I come down to like, this is my net price. Like, this is what I have to pay. Mm-hmm. You can subtract the loan from there too, but just remember to add that back in in terms of like, that's going to be paid at some point in time by your family, whether it's the student or you as the parents. But I think that's really a good way to compare apples to apples versus mm-hmm. apples to oranges. Yeah, yeah. I even recommend that students dig into the terms of the loans, right? Because some loans are so much better than another. You know, and I mean, I don't know uh, if you have a quick and easy way to kind of address that. So if you, you know, typically the federal loans that students see on their financial aid packages, those are going to be the best loans that students can get and really the only loans that they're going to be able to get under their own signature. Mm-hmm. A lot of families are taken back and saying, well, that's only a small amount of money. Because as a college freshman, freshmen can take out, can take out no more than $5,500 their first year. Mm-hmm. Families are like, that's not very much money at all. But then 
they have the most favorable terms that students aren't required to make payments on those while they're in school. Uh, interest rates are fairly low. These are pure student loans. And there's a lot of protections behind those loans for, you know, for the student. But beyond that, if you need additional money, it could be that parent loan that you might see as part of their financial aid package. Even if you're not packaged with that parent loan, know that you can take that out. And if a parent doesn't want to take out a parent loan, then it's looking at other other private loans, which are not going to be part of the financial aid package, but it's figuring out like, what are the interest rates on those loans? What are the repayment terms on those loans? Um, if there's a co-signer release option you know, for a parent who's co-signing or somebody who's co-signing on those loans. But you're right, Sally, different loans have different terms, have different interest rates. And if a family is looking at taking out any type of education loans, I always try to draw them first to having, them, having the student take out that student loan and then looking at other loans to cover any type of shortfall. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I know that was a little bit outside of the scope of what we were talking about today, but it just, to me, is such a big issue for people that I always sort of think about that. But I will say too, we've got a lot of shows that inc- that cover loans in more details. We have blog posts on blog.getintocollege.com. So you can check it all out there. So thank you so much, Beth. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you again, Sally, for having me. Absolutely. All right, everyone. Uh, When we return, I will be welcoming Jessica Mertz of the Cleary Center. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so as I mentioned in the intro, Jessica Mertz is the executive director of the Cleary Center. So Jessica, I was hoping you could kind of start with, you know, an explanation of what the Cleary Center is, maybe an origin story, like explaining how it came about. Yeah, absolutely. So 
Clear Center is a nonprofit organization, and we work with colleges and universities across the country to help improve their campus safety efforts. One of the primary things we do is that we train campus administrators directly to help them implement a federal law called the Cleary Act. Um, and the Cleary Act, it requires institutions to do a number of things, including report publicly their crime data. There's requirements around um, supporting victims of violence. And it also requires them to publicly outline what some of their policies and procedures are going to be around campus safety. Um, so ultimately, what we're doing is, is helping institutions build some infrastructure and some framework to create safer communities. Mm-hmm. We do have a, a really powerful origin story that um, I think is probably very relatable to the audience of this podcast. Um, we were founded by uh, Connie and Howard Cleary over 35 years ago after the murder of their daughter, Jean Cleary, um, in 1986. And Jean was a freshman at Lehigh University when another student came into her dorm room and brutally raped and murdered her. And um I've talked to Connie Cleary, who's still connected with the organization, and she will often talk about how when they were looking at institutions and deciding where Jean was going to go, that safety really was a big factor for them. They were paying attention to that, and it was part of why they made the decision for her to ultimately go to Lehigh University, because you know their perception for them was that it had a, a reputation of being a very safe and suburban setting. And certainly after that tragedy, one of the things that that they came to learn and that we still talk about often as an organization is that, um, you know, you you really can't think about an institution as being safe or unsafe, that Mm -hmm. these types of violence and harm can ultimately happen anywhere. And that's that's a message that we often want to communicate to people is to, you know, not just think about institutions as these bucolic settings that are immune to to violence and harm, but to really recognize as a consumer and as a community member that there are things you need to be aware of and that there's resources and policies in place to, to help make that community safer. Mm-hmm. And the ultimate message is also not that Lehigh is a less safe place than other colleges. This is a terrible confluence of events. Of course, um, of course, yeah. yes. Yeah. And we've had the opportunity to work with them and with other institutions over the years and just thinking about, you know, what can be learned from that tragedy. Mm-hmm. And so much has changed and transformed at that institution and at institutions across the country since then because of the passage of the Cleary Act. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, kind of, I think next steps going forward then, what do you as a parent, what, you know, how will you talk to your kids since you actually know a lot more than most parents about safety, that's both a gift of kind of a blessing and a curse, right? So what, you know, how will you address these issues with your own kids, your own students? Yes, it is a blessing and a curse. I often get some eye rolls at home already telling me that I know too much. <laughs> uh, and I, I always tell them, you'll thank me someday, someday. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that what I, 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 I have the privilege of obviously in this position, learning a lot about campus safety and working directly with campus safety professionals and also being a parent and having these conversations, you know, with my peers about what does safety look like and and how can you prepare a student when they're going to college. And I think one of the things that always stands out to me is really how much um, I would say the concerns are, are misdirected 
Um, I think people are very focused on thinking about crime in the surrounding area mm-hmm. and um, don't think about crime that could be happening within the campus community or types of harm that can be happening within the campus community. And I think because of that, their attention often gets diverted in the wrong way of thinking that oh, all I need to be worrying about is what is this institution doing to protect my student from you know the 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 community surrounding the institution. But really, when you look at the the crime rates and when you understand what are some of the the higher risk incidents happening at an institution, it is things that are likely to be um, perpetrated by other students, by other members of the community, things like sexual assault, hazing, hate crimes. And the reality is those are sometimes much more difficult conversations to have with children mm-hmm. and to prepare them for. Mm-hmm. Well, it's... I mean, the terrible thing is that it could be somebody that you thought of as a friend, right? Absolutely. In every one of those circumstances. And that's so much harder to think about. Um, so, Absolutely. so how, yeah. So how do you, like, what do you advise parents and students to think about? Like, like how do they prepare themselves and how do they also, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. You're going to want to break this into pieces, but how do they also make sure they're not part of this culture? You know, mm-hmm. that they don't mm-hmm. get like you think about hazing. That's usually a group situation. How do you make yes. sure you're not swept up in something like that? Yeah, I think that the most important place to start is really to get an understanding of what safety means in, in particular to your child. Um, figure out what it is that's going to make them feel safe. And this is going to be very dependent on people's identities, on their lived experiences, And you might need to recognize that the answer to that isn't always going to be tangible things like a well-lit path or security Mm -hmm. escorts that um, we have found that in, at least in my experience, that what is often making students feel safe is a sense of belonging at the institution, Mm -hmm. you know, is a sense of community. And um, I think we really think about safety as part of the institution's culture. So you know, when you're looking at, at schools and you're deciding what's going to be a right fit, I would say, and you're, you're paying attention to the culture and the environment and the resources and the services and the academics, think about safety as part of that, as part of that bigger, you know, conversation about, um, about culture. And to have that conversation with, with your student, with your child um, pretty early on, just to start thinking, like have them start thinking about what is this going to feel like to be away from home? What's going to make you feel safe or unsafe to just empower them, I think, to consider that as part of their experience and to really make sure that they're prepared for the reality of what, what that's going to feel like in this completely new environment, um, which is you know part of the excitement, but might also be part of what's contributing to some of that fear and, and lack of safety. Mm-hmm. So is there, I mean, I think there's that feeling of safety, but then there's also kind of, you know, incidents can occur, things like, like how can families sort of investigate, like if they go to a campus and it's a beautiful campus and they're like, well, I totally feel safe here, right? This looks beautiful. Everybody walking around looks like me and looks like my friends. I feel completely Mm. safe. How do they dig a little deeper and understand in maybe some concrete ways about, you know, situations that might be more challenging, how to defend themselves to the extent that's possible? And believe me, I know it's not, you know what I mean? Like, I wonder if we could get into some more concrete details. 
Sure. Well, uh, to go back to your earlier question about um, how do you talk to your child about not being part of the problem, right? Mm. And I think that is it's a difficult conversation to have because mm. you often don't want to think about of your, your child as potentially harming somebody else or contributing to, you know, an, an environment where, where violence or crime are occurring. Um, but the reality is when we look at some of these really pervasive issues like sexual assault and domestic violence, hazing, it's not just the person, the people who are committing those acts who are responsible for that culture. It's all of the people who are also ignoring it, you know, looking the other way, not intervening. And I think there's a real important opportunity, especially for this generation of young people who are being exposed to a lot of this at a much earlier age you know, through social media, through TV, the things that they're consuming, they know that sexual assault is something that happens in our, you know, our society. So I would often get asked by parents that they'd say, you know, how do I make sure my child doesn't get accused of assaulting somebody? Um, or how do I make sure my child doesn't get hazed? Mm. And I would try and reframe that question to them of how, what can you do or what can you say to them to make sure that they are not assaulting somebody to make sure that they are not, you know, hazing people, not just thinking about them as being, you know, potentially accused of or of being victims of something. And I think that comes in where that comes in is having an understanding of talking to them about what consent is, uh, mm -hmm. is a good starting point, right? So they understand what does consent look like? How can you make sure that you're getting it? What role does alcohol and other drugs play in consent for something like hazing? We see parents minimizing hazing behaviors all of the time. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it is often alumni and families who they might know that their child is being hazed or is a part of an organization that hazes, and they just don't take it that seriously. They don't think there's anything wrong with it. So um, asking questions to get a better understanding of not just what's happening, but what impact is it having on, on your child? You know, are they losing sleep? Are they struggling academically? Are they feeling like they have to do something that they don't want to do? Asking some of those questions that's going to give you a better understanding of what is really the impact that this is having and how can I get them to take this seriously and recognize that this isn't uh, a, a healthy part of their experience or their um, the culture that they're a part of right now. Uh, so a lot of it is just those, you know, those smart probing questions that you have to be prepared to ask um, but when you asked about what we, you know, how can people dig a little bit deeper and learn a little bit more so that they're not just looking at what's on the surface, we just recently actually Cleary Center released a guide for families. It's a, a resource guide for families. And in that we have some further tips. So I would certainly recommend that people check that out. But, um, one of the things that we recommend is, um, to ask questions about, where if they're concerned about their child's well-being, what can they do? You know, who can they contact? And what information are you going to have a right to? What information mm -hmm. are you even going to have access to? Because that can feel like a big shift for, for parents is, you know, you're not necessarily the one who's calling the principal to find out what's going on, right? That this really is going to be them having to advocate for themselves and having to get a lot of resources for themselves. So getting an understanding of, you know, what's your role and, and what could you do if you are concerned? Um, 
Another thing that you can do is ask questions about what the crime statistics are. That is publicly available information. Schools have to publish it in their annual security report. And the Department of Education also has a website where you can look at those crime rates across different institutions and just get a sense of, you know, what are some of the things that might be issues to be paying attention to at this institution specifically. And I think that will help you know what questions to ask then as follow-up questions. And I think a big indicator is is also to look at what information you're able to find online. How can you can you find the answers to your questions by looking on at the school's website? Because that's how you're gonna know how transparent and accessible mm-hmm. a lot of this information is. And that's likely where your child's going to be going for information too. So I think it's um, it's a really good indicator when a lot of your questions can be easily answered by what you're finding as publicly available information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read an article that talked about how colleges that report zero crime are probably actually like they really are truly not being transparent because we know that this happens on every college campus. And so... It's counterintuitive, but colleges that are reporting it might actually be the most transparent and have the most positive resources. So dig in, find out more. Yeah, it really can be counter to what you think, but we say that often, and it talks about that in the guide, that if you see an institution that's reporting higher crime rates, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're having uh, higher rates of crime. It can be that they're making the reporting options more accessible, that they're doing their due diligence and being transparent and reaching out to students and making sure that they are paying attention to what's happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that students are comfortable reporting it. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I wanted to go back to something you said earlier too, that I thought like, you know, in let's, instead of talking about how can you protect yourself, how can you make the campus overall safe? Because if you're talking about conversations of consent and you're talking to a student about how do you make sure that you get consent, that it's also going to educate that student about um, if someone is violating their consent. It's going to help in every way across the board, I think. Like, And that was something that I kind of hadn't occurred to me until you said that, but like educating about what consent is will help your student, will help other students as well. Absolutely. Uh, And I think that goes for a lot of these issues, you know, educating about what hazing is or about what hate crimes are, getting a baseline, you know, level of understanding and comfort talking about them is going to then, you know, permeate across that community. And, And I will say so many schools now are doing really great education around these issues and encouraging your child to take advantage of those, you know, go to the orientation mm-hmm. sessions, go to some of these workshops to really use that opportunity to increase their own understanding of these issues so that they can be part of creating this, this safer, healthier community. Mm-hmm. And as parents take it seriously, I worked, I worked at a couple different high schools, but one of the high schools I worked at, the head of the upper school would collect through an anonymous survey information about drug use, interpersonal violence, et cetera. And the parents n- never went until he got us, the college counselors, to go. And then they would go because they were very focused on college. But their thought about what he was trying to do was that it wasn't important for their child. Their child was fine. Their child was going to be fine. And I mean, really what he was doing was far more important than what we were doing, you know, ultimately. I mean, and I'm not trying to minimize what I do. I think it's important, but 
honestly, there's so many good colleges, but your your child's mental and physical safety is obviously more important. Yeah. You know? I mean, I we don't want to create fear. You know, we want information right. to be empowering. But I would say the biggest mistake parents make is to think, nope, that won't happen to my kid, mm-hmm. not my child. And that's just not a, you know, that that's not a helpful reality to live in. I think it's, you need to assume that anybody has the potential of being a victim of one of these crimes or being a part of them and to just proactively be comfortable talking about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the, this isn't about fear, because what this is about is about how do you talk about it? How do you advocate for yourself? How do you advocate for others? How do you create a safer environment? I ultimately think that is actually a wonderful and hopeful message, you know? Absolutely. Yes, yes. So so I really love that. And do, I just want to let everybody know, I went on to the Cleary Center uh, website and the Staying Safe on Campus guide is very easy to find. <laughs> so so just go on to Cleary Center, you easily find it online. And um, just to wrap it up, is there anything that I didn't ask about that I should have? Um, anything you're wondering or you, that you would like to say, I should say, that you think people might be wondering about? Yeah, one thing that I just want to point out, and um, I've spent many years working with survivors of violence, specifically college students who experience sexual assault or dating violence. And in working with them, in responding and supporting them, I would say that telling their parents and, and making that phone call was often one of the most terrifying things to them. Um, and I heard a lot of students who we're not going to tell their parents or, or let their parents know what they were experiencing, even though it was having an incredible impact on their mental health and their experience. And um, a lot of that is because they were fearful that their parents were going to ask a lot of questions or, or blame them for what happened to them and make them feel like they could have or should have done something differently. And also because they thought that their parents would then be worried about them all the time (laughs) and wouldn't want them to stay at college and would want them to stay home. And as a parent, I can understand having both of those instincts and having Mm -hmm. that being a reaction because of, you know, it is not never what you want to be hearing from your child. But I just want to emphasize how important it is that if you, your child does have an experience with one of these forms of violence, that having a non-judgmental supportive response and really just trying to figure out what they need and how you can help them is going to go a long way in their healing process and is going to be really make a difference in how they then are able to get support and uh, and even decide whether or not to report that incident. So I just always want to tell parents that because it feels like an important lesson that I learned in my role. And I think it's something that people aren't always really prepared for, unfortunately, until you have to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ask questions first and second and third, <laughs> you know, before. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. I really appreciate it. I think this is such an important issue and um, yeah, just want more people to learn about it. Absolutely. Yeah. We appreciate the opportunity and I hope that the guide is a valuable resource for folks. Okay. All right. Great. All right. Um, We will be taking a break. And when we return, I will be talking with Nicole Doyle about homeschooling. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? 
With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results, 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice goals. Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. The boroughs are New York City. The burbs are everywhere else. Real estate is the ultimate game of risk and reward. It's the biggest investment most people ever make. Fortunes are made over a lifetime and lost in a day. And we're not playing with Monopoly money. How do you stay ahead? Who's buying? Who's selling? And why? What do they know? We want the truth. You need an edge. Burrows and Burbs is your secret weapon to giving you the insider knowledge and strategies you need to succeed in the high-stakes world of real estate. From Palm Beach to Palm Springs, Manhattan to Malibu, we press the experts to expose the pain, find the deals, and occasionally predict the future. That's Burrows and Burbs, 3 o'clock Eastern, noon Pacific, because everyone can make money in real estate. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about um, what homeschooling students can do when applying to college or thinking about college even, right? Thanks, Sally. Um. So how, I mean, there are some homeschooling students um, who are incredibly strong. Um, And I want to say that we were thrilled to see them um, at the most selective institutions, you know, University of Chicago when I worked there. But then we would also see some some homeschooling students who were just really not as prepared as they thought they were. So I think this is a pretty important topic for families. Um, What are like what are some ways that a homeschooling applicant can make sure that they are going to be a strong applicant for whatever their goal institution might be? And I know that's a broad range because there's a lot of different kinds of school of universities out there. Exactly. And when I when I worked in college admissions, I I used to read all the homeschool applications. Mm-hmm. So I think coming from that perspective, I've seen a lot of different types of applicants and I'd like to start by even saying that there's so many reasons why a student may homeschool. Mm-hmm. So as far as it could be a dancer, it could be an athlete, it could be a student who, you know, for whatever reason has chosen to to homeschool. So I think there's a lot of different reasons. So I always mm-hmm. like to kind of start with that. But I do think as far as students really need to consider their curriculum. And what I always say for any student, whether mm-hmm. they're in a in a in a traditional school setting or as a homeschool student, is those five core classes are really important. So as far as like the English, the history, the math, the science, and a world language. And I would say that stands true for a homeschool student too. Like think about that core and think about if possible, and I know it probably is a little bit harder, but think about the rigor. Um, So one of the things that we always looked for when reading a homeschool application is what were those classes that maybe the student took outside of the home? Mm-hmm. And one of the, we always love to see community college classes because then you were able to see how is that student doing maybe in a, in a, in a traditional setting. 
And so if they took a community college class, it was a grade from a professor. And so that was a really great way to show academic rigor a little bit too, and kind of how a student did in that setting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's also, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but it's also a good recommendation, um, right? I mean, when when I would see recommendations from uh, the parent, I just couldn't take those seriously, even if the parent had been the primary educator, even if the parent was a university professor and was highly educated. This is clearly, this is someone who should be biased about their child. Of course, they think their child is great. So you need that unbiased or at least less biased <laughs> right. recommendation. And, it, and it, again, that same idea. It is someone outside of the home is not who's mm-hmm. not only teaching that student, but again, right. that recommender. Like it's a different perspective, which is so nice to see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Now, what about, I mean, another thing that, um, you know, I think the stereotype of a homeschool student is that they're very isolated, that they don't interact with others. And obviously, colleges look at extracurricular activities. So what can homeschool students do around uh, around that? That's a great question. There's a lot of ways to interact, I think, too, that I think whether it's a community activity that maybe they get involved in. There are some states, and this so this is something to keep an eye out for. There are some states and school districts that allow homeschool students to participate in extracurricular activities through their local district. Mm-hmm. So whether it's sports, whether it's theater, whether it's clubs and activities, sometimes, and again, that's something to check with in your local district and your state to see if they do, in fact, allow students to get involved in activities through the school district. But that, again, is going to be school by school basis. Mm-hmm. But there's so many ways to get involved. And I think as far as like even just within the community or volunteer work or just, you know, a local theater troupe or scouting, like whatever kind of the students' interests are, there's always a way to find it. And so it is a really good thing to do. Like I know as an example, like, and this is kind of interesting is um, my kids play in a soccer league on a Friday night. And it was kind of, it was more the the kids created this league and it's through, you know, through a local organization. And I happened to run into someone who said, oh, my, um, my student decided to be a part of this homeschool team. So like a homeschool team created a Friday night league team and they're part of this group. So like that's a really great way to socially interact, whether it's local homeschool students or Mm -hmm. whether it's with whoever you can gather as part of these teams. And Mm -hmm. I know even like our local, you know, our local ski mountain, they have a day when homeschoolers can go and ski at the mountain. And I think that's a great way to interact too. Like you're not just on the mountain, you can go inside and have lunch and be able to collaborate with other kids who are doing the same as you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, uh, one of the students that I worked with when I was at the University of Chicago, who was a homeschooling student, she she belonged to a debate team that was for homeschool students in the Bay Area of California, and that it yeah. just and she did incredibly well. Like they competed at very high levels. Um, I'll also say too that for people who homeschool for re- religious reasons, involvement through their church is a really obvious uh, solution yep. to that. Exactly. Yeah. Because I think there's also, you know, there's so many opportunities, like, again, that idea of there's, there's, people are homeschooling for many different reasons. But I think as far as like, if you're able to collaborate, especially with a religious organization, um, there oftentimes can be mission trips that can be throughout the school year, and different ways to get involved in in the community just in relation to those organizations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the benefits of homeschooling is the flexibility of it. 
So, you know, maybe take advantage of that, whether you're homeschooling for religious reasons or complete other reasons. Well, at the beginning of this segment, you were talking about actors, dancers, etc. I mean, you know, um, that flexibility is a lot of why they're homeschooling. It might be the entire reason why they're homeschoolers. Exactly. And what we're seeing now, I think, too, which is interesting and different is that there's um, there's kind of co-ops for learning, too. So you could go in. It could be once a week. It could be twice Mm -hmm. a week. But you can collaborate with these small groups. So that's another good thing to look for to see if like a curriculum, like maybe you don't have a skill in art, but your child really wants to take an art class. There could be a local art class in the community, but also through these co-ops, there could be Mm -hmm. extra art classes as well, or even music or honestly anything. Mm -hmm. So let's kind of dig in. I mean, we talked about the curriculum a little bit, but how, um, what are options for parents who they can help their student, but they're not comfortable designing a well-balanced curriculum? You know, they've got their skill set, but you know, I, I mean, speaking for myself, I, um, I went back to college and I had to take statistics. And so I did the math test and I had, I mean, I went through pre-calculus in high school and I did just fine, but I had forgotten everything after geometry, according to this test. So, (laughs) so no judgment on the parents who are not able to help their students with higher level math. Um, you know, what are, what are some of the ways that, that people can get that more balanced curriculum, like beyond even maybe before they're ready to go to a community college? Like I'm thinking about like eighth graders, for example. I think it's a mix. I think there's a lot of different reputable homeschooling programs online that students and families can take advantage of. Like it could be a combination, like, like you said, like some parents are so well educated and just want a different environment for their students. And so homeschooling is the right way to go. So you're able to do, there's lots and lots of reputable online programs with with structured courses that students can do. So it doesn't have to be that a parent starts from scratch and creating their own homeschool curriculum. Like there, there are course structures that they can take advantage of from start to finish without the community college classes. Mm-hmm. Students can take online advanced placement classes if they so choose, if the parents don't feel that curriculum is best suited for their teaching style either. So as far as it all depends on the type of classes a student wants to take, but I, and, and certainly the structure that the student is looking for, But a lot of those online classes and through online homeschool programs can be probably one of the best ways to do it if you want a structured and almost a little bit more of a rigor to a program. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how can someone figure out like what makes a good balanced program? I mean, one of the things I'm specifically thinking about, and I really welcome this, is I've seen on sites as diverse as small religious colleges and like I think the UCs advice for homeschooled students. Mm -hmm. So do you advise them to go to the college websites as well? That's one of my go-tos. I think it's either the college websites or sometimes I even, I would also encourage utilize your local school and like as far as even a high school guidance office Mm -hmm. to go in to say like, you know, how does this look in relation to the state requirements for a student to graduate Mm -hmm. from high school within a certain state? So, you know, they, even though they're not your college counselor, they are someone that you can go to and ask questions and provide guidance and even some direction as far as programs go. Mm-hmm. And if you're taking classes at the community college, they have counselors there too. Like what's it going to take yeah. to transfer to the four-year institution? What exactly. are the broader classes that you should be taking? Right. And I think as far as just making that determination of like, 
what does, you know, what does transfer? Like, even if I was to take certain classes, like, what are those classes that are going to be essentially most beneficial as I get into the college curriculum? And maybe, maybe I am more STEM related, maybe I am a more humanities student, but what are the classes that I should take that essentially down the road are going to be the most beneficial? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I think another challenge for homeschool students is that they're, they don't, I mean, some of these programs that we just discussed will provide a traditional um, kind of transcript. Um, but what in general might they need to do that's different from a t- traditional student on their college applications or throughout the college process? What are some of the tips that you might give there? I would say one of the tricks, and this is a combination, I do think, and and this is hard to say because so many schools are test optional. I know for a time period, they did the colleges and universities, they like to see standardized testing from a homeschool student. But with so many that are test optional, that has been waived a lot. But sometimes the testing was a really nice addition to an application to gauge a student's kind of skill level. I think, again, the grades in an outside source are very helpful. But I also think the colleges and universities want to see the student's level of preparedness. And a way to do that is interact with the colleges. Mm-hmm. Many of the, many schools, like maybe if it's a smaller school and they offer the option for an interview, that's a good way to interact with the college to let them know, like, I am prepared for college. Like, I am ready for that next step. And so I do think that many of those ways to engage with colleges and universities to show that you're ready is a great way to to kind of communicate with the schools. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, if they offer interviews, take advantage of interviews, whatever it might be. So, all right. Well, we it's time to um, wrap this up. So thank you so much, Nicole. Yeah, thank you, Sally. All right. So, um, and thank you to Jessica Mertz of the Cleary Center and Beth Feinberg Keenan, who um, opened up the show talking about how to interpret um, financial aid packages. Do be sure to join us next week for discussions into the Cal State system in California. I know you've all heard of the UCs. The Cal States are excellent options as well. Also, we will be talking about how to qualify for medical school when you graduated from college already and didn't take the right courses. It's not too late. Um, In addition, we'll tell you what to do um, when you've received your financial aid package and it isn't enough which I think a lot of people are going to feel that way. And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website. And you can also download every show for free on Amazon Music or iTunes. If you're curious about other topics, do remember to look through our archives. You can find them along with our blog posts on blog.getintocollege.com. That's blog.getintocollege.com. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation. New episodes drop every Thursday. The goal of this show is to demystify the college admissions process for families around the globe. To help with this mission, please leave a review and share with your friends. And to learn more about Bright Horizons College Coach, visit GetIntoCollege.com.